0: Continuing in our study through Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just kidding. We spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we are moving on uh, this week and we're picking up, we'll be in John chapter 3 if you want to move there and get ready. But what we're looking at isn't necessarily just um, a progression through a book. Instead, we're looking at scenes that stand out with a specific, unique quality. So what we're looking at is the scenes in the Gospels where we find Jesus having one-on-one conversations with individuals. One-on-one conversations. And so we see these face-to-face interactions that Jesus is having. And in these scenes, I think what's most exciting is we see really not just personality, but we see ourselves in the dialogue. This morning... We're looking at Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to Jesus. Reading in John chapter 3, of course, one of the most memorable or most well-known Bible verses comes from this chapter. I think everyone knows John 3, 16. Realize that this morning, that as we get to build in here or progress through John chapter 3, that we're looking at the context of that verse. What makes that verse so special? What makes that verse so prominent? What makes it mean so much? What makes it so powerful? Why is it so memorable that so many different people have memories of this verse or even know it well enough to be able to recite it? Even people who haven't spent time in church or maybe aren't even disciplined in reading God's word, they know this verse. This morning, we get a look at those preceding verses, the context around this. Picking up in verse 1, we'll be reading all the way through verse 15. But before we do that, let us pray that we might have understanding. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and the blessing that you've given us this morning to be here. God, I pray for your protection and your safety this morning as we worship you. Lord, I pray for understanding that we would be able to understand what is recorded in Your Word, and that we would know clearly how to apply it to our lives. Lord, help me. Lord, help all of us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Bible says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, so the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I've called this sermon, I've entitled it. Oh, I forgot the title. What is the title? It's in your bulletin. I thought that it was significant divine. divine encounters, but this is this this entire passage or this part of the Bible where Nicodemus is talking with Jesus is about faith. It's about what it means to have faith. How do we have faith when we think that we know everything? How do we have faith when we think that we know everything? This is a problem that we have whenever we spend a lot of time in church because we grow familiar with all of these biblical terms and these biblical ideas and we deceive ourselves into thinking that we know more than we actually do. I have this problem because I think I'm smart. The greatest lesson I learned in seminary was that I don't know quite a lot. Nicodemus was in a similar predicament. If we look at verse one, we learn quite a bit about him. The Bible tells us that he was a Pharisee. That means that Nicodemus strictly adhered to God's word, that he prioritized the word even to the point that he would add disciplines to it to make sure that he was not found out of bounds. Verse one also refers to Nicodemus as a ruler of the Jews which gives us a picture that he wasn't just a Pharisee, but that he was a member of the Jewish high court, or that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a limited group of people who were put into positions of power because of their prominence. So he's not just a Pharisee, but he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's an important guy. Jesus even refers to him, if you look in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Which means Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee, he wasn't just a member of the Sanhedrin, but that he was so prominent, he was so important, that nearly everyone in the community or in the Jewish faith looked at him as an authority on biblical things. He knew quite a lot. And even despite that, he's not able to understand what Jesus is telling him in this dialogue. Despite All of the understanding and the authority that Nicodemus had, he comes to him. And and if you look in just in verse four, he says, how can these things be? Look down at verse nine. How can these things be? Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus spiritual things. He simply said, to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus pauses and says, how can this be? Now, some commentators will say that this was a part of the the rabbinical tradition, or this was how rabbis taught, that they asked questions. And Nicodemus, being a teacher of teachers, would have known this, and he would have asked more questions to continue this dialogue. And I see evidence for that in verse 4. I see evidence that Jesus says that one has to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb? Obviously not. We see him continuing on this dialogue or he's asking a question in order to grab spiritual things that Jesus is trying to teach him. But in verse nine, I do not see that. He's not building. He's not moving in any direction. In verse 9, Nicodemus' response is simply, how can these things be? His question is not one of of, um, the Socratic method. Instead, it is one of ignorance. He doesn't get it. What's Jesus saying when he says that one must be born again? Even this teacher of teacher, this Pharisee, this member of Sanhedrin, he just doesn't get it. Jesus explains why it's possible for us to have so much knowledge for what we think is knowledge and still not be able to grasp the spiritual truths that are found in the Bible. we would let's read verses 11 and 12 again jesus says that we speak of things that we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you don't receive our testimony if i've told you of earthly things that you do not believe how can i tell you of heavenly things our greatest problem in thinking that we are Wise or smart enough to approach the truths that are found in the Bible is that we really drop the ball. We don't even realize that we're not capable of understanding all of the things that are found on this earth. What makes us think we're capable of understanding things that are beyond us in heaven? Jesus's illustration of the wind, you can see it. You know that it's there, it's tangible. You could even measure it. You could catch it in a bag if you tried hard enough. But how much do you know about the wind? Likewise, the spirit. Think about the parts of our body we're able to measure so many things. We know that we have a brain and we know that we have a heart, we have kidneys and we can measure that they have this function and that function, but anyone's been to a doctor recently knows that really we're still trying to figure out quite a bit. There's quite a bit we don't know. In fact, there's even parts of our composition that we're not even aware of. What about the mind? Where's that located? What about the soul? Where's that located? Does anyone deny that it's there? I haven't found anyone that does, but they can't point to it. How can we understand these things? Really, the problem that Nicodemus has faced is that he thinks that he knows so much he has lost sight of how much he doesn't know. He's lost sight of how much he doesn't know, and we have the same problem today. We want to understand heavenly things. We need to be reminded that there's no one among us, nor is there anyone alive or ever has been alive, who has ascended into heaven to discover heavenly things. Instead, there's only one person who descended from heaven to teach us heavenly things. There's only one person, the Son of Man. We need to have faith when we think that we know more than we do. Secondly, we need to have a faith that admits our need of the Son of Man to reveal these things to us. Jesus tells us clearly that to see the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom, we must be born again. Now this phrase, I think, is, it's used so much, but do we really understand what it means to be born again? I think most of us do. But we need to be careful when we're explaining it to others. This isn't a simple phrase. Nicodemus, the teacher of teachers, the member of Sanhedrin, the great Pharisee, Nicodemus, didn't understand what it meant. What does it mean to be born again? And why is it necessary to be born again to see the kingdom of God? The answer, of course, Jesus explains in verses 5 and through 7, that being born again is not a reference to a physical birth or a birth of flesh, but this is a reference to a part of us that is born dead. Being born again means that the Spirit that is created within us comes alive for the first time. And to see heavenly things and to know heavenly things and to be able to interact with God's kingdom, to be aware of it and to know that it's there requires that this part of us is alive. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again because the spirit that God put within you must be alive interacting with the kingdom of God. The spirit must be alive within you. To be born again doesn't mean that you crawl up into your mother's womb and crawl back out. What an awful idea. It means that a part of us comes alive for the first time. It's a second birth. This isn't something that naturally happens without God. The Spirit coming alive inside of a person isn't something that happens without God. You ever, do, you think, do, you, do you realize what the problem is that's presented here? If a part of you is born dead, how's it supposed to come alive? Can a dead thing save itself? Can a corpse crawl out of a grave? Can it reach out for help? Can it ask for help? Can it do anything? The spirit within us when born dead is not capable of helping itself, but it's through God that it's able to do anything at all. In this process, God provides to the spirit that's born within us conviction and awareness that we are able to reach out to God, that we're able to accept the grace that he's given to us. In this entire picture, what Jesus is telling to Nicodemus is that God sends a spirit. That he moves. That it's through this process that the Spirit is able to come alive. That in order to be born again, one must be, I'm sorry, in order to see the kingdom of God, one must be born again. Which starts with God. There's a second part of this process, though. God sending this ability for us to feel conviction, to be aware of our sins, to know that we need a Savior, isn't enough because it requires belief. Count how many times in chapter 3 the word believe is found. Jesus repeats it over and over and over again in a short period of time. Particularly when he's speaking with Nicodemus and he explains that in order to be saved, you must believe As simple as that, even when you aren't able to understand everything that God has put before you, that you can believe before you're able to understand it. You need to believe or that you need to have faith before you're able to see the kingdom of God. You have to believe the order of operations here is backwards from what we think it should be. We think that we need to see the kingdom of God so that we would be capable of believing in his grace. It's actually the opposite. Once we believe, we're able to see the kingdom of God. But that is in our assurance of faith. Our faith, our belief happens simply because we're aware of our sin. Simply because we experience conviction. Simply because there's a spiritual awakening. Because there's the born ability that we are able to accept God's grace. We have faith even when we think that we know. We have faith to admit our need because we know that seeing this kingdom isn't something that comes to us naturally. Our faith is in response to God's grace, and this is so significant. We have a need to respond. God presenting himself to us, giving us his word, giving us his grace, that doesn't save us. It doesn't make one born again. It doesn't give them the ability to see the kingdom of God. Instead, there's a next step, which is our response. Building up the John 3.16, which is actually the consequence of unbelief. Bible and Jesus' teaching here clearly presents to us that we have a need to respond to Him and to respond to this grace. Starting in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is different than most world religions. Our authority and our teaching doesn't come from somebody having some special kind of awakening. Instead, it comes from God himself taking on flesh, descending from heaven, sacrificing and giving up all the glories of the kingdom of God that he can be bound in flesh that he can experience what we experience, that he can become an atonement and a, sacri- or a propitiation on our behalf so that he could do all of these things. His authority in teaching doesn't come from a place of intellectual exercise or study like Nicodemus's. His place of authority when he speaks and when he teaches comes from experience that he came from heaven. His experience is the basis of his authority and he teaches here our faith to respond to God's grace. There's a reference at the end of this passage, or at least where I stopped, in verses 14 and 15, to Moses rising, raising high in the wilderness, the serpent. I don't know if you're familiar with this, what's being alluded to here. But if you jump back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21, you'll see this story written out. Pretty clearly, and it's not that long. This is right after the the rock at Meribah. The moment in Israel's history when Moses was instructed by God to speak to a rock, instead struck the rock, and God said that you would not enter the promised land because you failed to acknowledge me as God before my people. What happens immediately after this? Now I want you to think about this, just in Israel's history, how miraculous this is. Everything that they've been through, I spent a lot of time over the past 11 weeks talking about this. Everything that Israel had been through, delivered from Egypt, the Red Sea parted, water provided, wandering in the wilderness, all of these different things. The Ten Commandments delivered to them and presented to them. And now at Meribah, Moses drops a ball and instead of doing what God asked him to do, he struck a rock like he had done previously. God still provided water. Let's just pause there water poured out of a rock in the desert. That rock becomes a symbol of God's protection and his providence for the nation of Israel. We call God our rock, not just because of the foundation, not just because of the story that we read about in the New Testament. But that's an Old Testament idea that this rock or God's presence or his providence would be following Israel around in the the wilderness, protecting them. How miraculous. As part of this judgment, Moses isn't the one that leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. In fact, his brother Aaron is condemned to die. He was supposed to be a spiritual leader for a nation, and he had failed. We see the passing of the reins between this first generation to a second generation of leaders. God's choice to pass on the reins, and, and this is incredibly miraculous. I mean It's amazing what God has done. despite the, cons- the, the constant disobedience or constant faithlessness of a people that God's provided for, God continues to come back and continues to provide for them. How many times can we put up with this? God doesn't seem to have any limits. Numbers 21, we find that after Aaron dies, the people of Israel respond in faithlessness, that they grumble against not just Moses, but they grumble and complain against God, who's brought them out in the wilderness to continue to wander. It's not long after they see the consequence of disobedience and faithlessness to God that they're doing the exact same thing. And so God decides to judge Israel, to teach them, to discipline them like a father would discipline his children. And the Bible says that he sends fiery serpents. Most likely called fiery serpents because of the inflammation that would happen whenever you were bitten from them. The Bible says then that many in Israel died. Imagine this incredible scene. A rock producing water to provide for this, this nation, for this faithless group of people. And now there's snakes all around them biting them and many of I'm a terrified of snakes. I hate snakes. Many of them are dying. The people go to Moses and they say, We see that we have been disobedient to God. Actually, let me turn back here. Let me read it. Let me just read from Numbers 21, and I'm just going to start in verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God's choice here, after hearing Moses intercede for the people, after they've repented for their sins, is not to take away the snakes. Instead, he instructs Moses to set up on a pole a picture of a snake. So that if you're bitten, you can go to this pole and you can look at it and you can live. The significance of this, just think about it for a second. The Bible doesn't say that that person would be suddenly healed. The Bible doesn't say that that snake bite would suddenly go away. It says that you won't taste that final bit of that snake's bite. You won't die. When I read that, what I imagine is that when you're bitten by the snake, your leg's still going to swell up. There's still going to be inflammation. There's still going to be pain. It's still going to be hot to the touch. But you won't die if you look at this picture of God's provision. You won't die if you look at this picture of God's provision. Likewise, Jesus says, as Moses raised the serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The consequence of sin, the consequence of disobedience, the consequence of faithlessness is like being bitten by a snake we experience in this world day in and day out. Sickness, grief, turmoil, poverty, everything that's wrong with the world that you can name, that I can name, is a consequence of sin. The world wasn't created to be imperfect. Instead, the image of the world is marred by sin that is present in it. We experience the consequences of sin every day in our life. We're walking around with snake bites. Our calves are swollen up. There's inflammation and pain, and it's difficult to walk. And I don't know if you've ever been bitten by a snake or any poisonous animal. But you don't have a lot of energy when that happens. You want to lay down and die. You want to close your eyes. You either want to get better or die, one or the other. We live in a world with snake bites, it's an act of agency. It's an act of human will that we make the choice or that we make the decision to keep our eyes open and to look at the serpent sitting up on a pole. What Jesus is saying here is that the Son of Man must be raised high like the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus was on a cross raised high so that even today when we experience the snake bites in this world, we have the agency to hold our eyes open, to fix our eyes upon the cross, to remember that because our eye is on the cross, we will not experience death, but that we will experience eternal life. When we look at the story, we find a very learned man who knew quite a lot about God's law and what it meant and how to apply it. We judge the Pharisees a lot because they added to the law more than they should. And I'm not going to deny that what they did was wrong. A legalist perspective of the Bible moves away from the grace that God has provided to us. But they only did it because they cared an awful lot because they were convicted about their need to be obedient to God's Word. Nicodemus stands out in biblical history as somebody who would turn away and that he would acknowledge Christ as Savior. A member of Sanhedrin who became a Christian. But he didn't do it because of anything that he learned or anything that he was taught. He did it because he made the choice to respond to God's grace. He did it because he made a choice to fix his eyes upon the cross. To experience suffering in this life so that he might not die, but that he might have eternal life. What Jesus taught to Nicodemus in the first part of this dialogue is timeless. We're here this morning and we're experiencing the same thing. Many of us have grown up in church all our lives and we know many things about the Bible. Are we willing to admit how much we don't know? Are we willing to admit how much we need to fix our eyes upon the cross every moment of every day through every experience because it's in hardship that we realize how much we don't know when we're not able to explain or even provide an explanation to somebody who needs it when we experience a snake bite? The answer isn't that God wants suffering for us. The answer is that he wants us to rely on him. So whether you've been a Christian all your life and you need to be reminded to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Or you've never understood that seeing the kingdom of God only comes when you make that decision to do so. I pray that as we have a time of invitation this morning that you would reflect on that need that you would consider what it means to fix your eyes upon the cross. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the conviction that you have provided to us. God, I thank you that you've given us the ability to know you and that you have blessed us with your word that we are able to read from it and to learn who you are. God, I pray that you would continue to provide to us understanding this morning. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't believed in you, I pray that you would give them the grace that they need to be able to see that seeing the kingdom of God comes through belief, and it's not the other way around. God, I pray that you would save the lost. God, I pray that you'd save the lost in Greenwood. And around the world, God, I pray that your church would be a church that you are proud of. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen. amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Number three, seven.